The past couple of weeks, I've been, you know, as usual, just laying before the Lord what He wants me to speak this morning. And I knew this day was coming for the last, I don't know, five, six weeks. And I really don't get focused on that until we get close to it. Or else, lest I, lest I get confused and change my mind six times. So, um, yeah, I had, in, in the first church that, uh, that Vicki and I had pastored, uh, there was a, a, an, uh, one of my deacons, big tall guy, Gerald, and I was having a discussion with Gerald and I said, you know, I said, he asked me, he says, he says, do you, do you come in early and pray? And I said, I do. And, uh, I said, I pray because just in case the Lord wants to change my mind. And so I was bouncing between a couple different things coming into this morning and I'm, I, I had something that just really lit up inside of me that I want to bring to you this morning. And it's a struggle that I had from the very first day I met Jesus. April 5th, 1981. The Lord put the prophet's call on my life. And I guess if someone doesn't understand that, they don't know me by now. I, I didn't, I didn't put it there. I am what he made me. And so are you. And Wednesday night we are looking at motivational gifts. This one coming up on this Wednesday is encouragement, the encourager. And so I hope, hope that you show up for this one because it's going to be really good. And I, and I'm not speaking presumptuously or boastfully before we even get there. It's just that I, I, encourager just flows. Just, it, if there's anything that flows out of me, it's, it's that. Now, I'm not saying all the time, but I try to make it happen. And uh, if anybody knows me on Facebook, you know that I like to make people smile, if not laugh. I like to joke, but I, I do that to bring brevity to the calling that I have. There's a, a man who, uh, Lauren, oh my, I can't remember his last name. I hate it when that happens. Um, Sanford, thank you. Uh, when Lauren Sanford... Uh, he, he had a, a, a son and a family, and, and his son would say this about his dad. He said, my dad was a prophet, and when people would come over to the house, they would feel it. And it would make them nervous. And my dad was a clown. He was a jokester, and he liked to joke around. And the reason why he did that is to put people at ease. I try to do that without bringing any kind of frustration to the Holy Spirit and what He wants to do through me as a person. I can speak freely of these things now because I understand it more than what I did then. And back then, it was like I didn't even want to tell anybody I had this calling because they they would they would say I'm a kook anymore. I don't care. You know, you get to that age, just don't care. I've never been one to be fearful of man. just hasn't ever been something I've wanted to do because along with that comes compromise. 
And as a pastor, I knew there was going to be a conflict with that. And so I endeavored to do my best to share the word of the Lord wherever, whenever, and however. And this morning, I want to share with you my first major theological struggle. I fought between these two things. And I had a regular wrestling match for the first probably 20 years in Christ and ministry, wrestling with grace and judgment. Wrestling with grace and judgment. You ever do that? You will if you get mad at somebody and you want to bring a little righteous indignation towards them. You'll struggle with that. Jesus looked at his disciples who wanted to call down fire from heaven, and Jesus looked at him and goes, you know, it's like, what, Jesus couldn't do that on his own? A, a city, two towns, turned them away. Oh, we don't want Jesus. We don't want, I don't want, no, we don't want him here. And the disciples caught wind of that, and right away they wanted to call down fire on those stone throwers. Like Elijah did. Now there was a ball of fire for you. Literally. Jesus said this. You don't know what manner of spirit you are of. I pray that that question digs deeply into your own curiosity on the shallow part of it and conviction on the deep part of it. Jesus was silent when he went before those who put him on the cross. Silent. There was a time when I don't think I'd ever be silent going before those who would do that to me. I'd always want to set them straight if I could. But along the way, some things occurred, and I learned how to to not balance. Because you can't balance judgment. If judgment is righteous, judgment will happen, and it must happen, unless God says no. And sometimes we don't know that, and sometimes we don't like it when he does. Ask Jonah. He had a huge crisis between judgment and grace. The Lord wanted Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh. They were the ones who were wicked, vile, merciless, and they marched their army like a machine of destruction and death and suffering, and they they were ruthless. And so when the Lord said to Nineveh, Nineveh, or I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach, you know, you know the story. He did a 180 degree I'm walking directly in the opposite direction of where God is calling me to go. And he struggled with that in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights. That's no story, folks. That really happened. There are fish in the ocean big enough to do that. Wow. 
And when he was in the belly of the whale, he was dead. Read his prayer. He was dead. Just like Jesus said that the Son of Man is going to be in the belly of a whale three days and three nights, such as Jonah was. The Son of Man will be in the grave. Jesus was dead. Jonah was dead. And it all came about because of the struggle between judgment and grace. Jesus was in the belly of the earth because of a struggle between judgment and grace. Jacob at Bethel. Maybe it's because he had a rock as a pillow. That's what I used to, you know, he, he pulled up a rock and laid down and put his head on a rock. That would make me have some funny dreams too. But he had a vision of, of, of angels going up and down a ladder, a stairway. He saw angels coming down, angels going up. He saw heavenly traffic. More so, he saw daily and moment-by-moment involvement between heaven and earth because to that point, Jacob didn't think that God was all that involved with him. He was a liar. He was a cheat. He was a stealer. Jacob... And now his brother wanted, he thought in his mind, my brother's coming to kill me. He hadn't seen his brother in decades. Jacob's all grown up. Esau's all grown up. And he's thinking Esau wants to kill me. His problem, Jacob, was this, is that that was unresolved. And he had no other recourse in mind but to think that his brother would kill him. Why? Because he deserved it. He deserved death. And the Lord appeared to him as an angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. And he wrestled with him all night long. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. The very thing that he cheated his brother out of, and cheated to receive from his daddy the blessing. He now wrestled with the incarnate Christ and said, I want you to bless me. He thought he was dead. And then he met grace. You know that story? <laughs> when, when it was dawn, the angel popped him in the hip and, and he limped for the rest of his life as if he could forget. It was a daily reminder that God touched him and he was a different man and so different that his name was changed. That angel of the Lord the pre-incarnate Christ said, I need to go. It's dawn. Lest you get a really good look at me. I'm leaving. Boom. Hits him in the hip and, and takes off. And he says, he says, you have been called cheater. I now call you Israel. 
the father of a great nation, a nation of God's blessing. If you look through the Old Testament, you look through the Old Testament, you will see that there is no word for grace in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language. In the ancient original language, there is no word for grace there. Does that mean there was no grace? Does not, does it? Just because that word is not there doesn't mean that it was not present. It's just that they didn't have a word that adequately described God's grace. Oh, they had word pictures. And now we have stories. But they knew. David knew. And that's why you'll hear me say every now and then, don't mention the D word around God. The deserve word. Oh, I don't deserve it. What do you deserve? Nothing. What are you complaining about? We are sons and daughters of the Most High. If he died for you and gave his life for you so we could be with him forever, why not ask the whole world from him? Ask largely. Deserve? Don't you tell God you don't deserve that. That insults him. We deserve death. So don't mention the D word. So we look in the New Testament and in Romans 11.22, we have this word. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Consider therefore. See those two? Do you think they're opposites? Sternness to those who fell. But kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. When you look at that, you begin to understand that there are two different dynamics there. You have the kindness of God and you have the severity of God. And it's like, man, we've got two different things working against each other. When I came to Christ in my younger years, I was a fireball. But it wasn't all God's fire. There's a lot of anger and sternness in it. And and I had a a dear friend in the Lord who's now with Jesus and walking in the fullness of him. Bob Moody, he says, Rip, in, in, in Bob's wonderful tone of voice. He goes, brother, you need to do a study on grace, God's grace. And I just kind of looked at him and I said, okay. And then just went on. He knew it sunk. He didn't have to do a lecture on it. He didn't have to say anything further. The Holy Spirit did the rest. He knew it was the word of the Lord. And I did too. So we just went on to talking about shooting squirrels and crows afterwards, you know, and and just didn't give it a thought, but it stuck with me. And I began to do a study on God's grace. 
And I felt ashamed through the whole thing. I thought, oh God, I don't want to misrepresent you. And that's the danger I walked in. If you turn with me to Romans 5, and we're going to read verse 20 right on down to the next chapter, which is Romans 6, 1 and 2, and it's only a couple verses. The law was brought in. Why was the law brought in? That the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, in chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. In King James language, it says, God forbid. God forbid that we willfully sin. In fact, Paul, and we believe that he was the writer of Hebrews, but we have no proof other than, don't say that to a theologian because they'll call you a heretic. But the two sure do sound the same. In Hebrews it says this, if you go on willfully sinning, because there's grace, there is no sacrifice. You crucify Christ again. That's serious. If it wasn't for the law, and that's what I want to bring to you this morning, the need for a holy convergence, a holy converging of two things, two dynamics, two things that do not change but together bring fullness of the whole. That's a convergence. I want to bring to you a convergence between the sternness of God And the kindness of God, the law of God with grace and truth. And so we have this, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? How? How can we live in sin any longer? You know, I'm amazed that I guess when being brought up in a time when there was naughty language, and then there's behaving language. And as I look across this room, I think you all know what I'm talking about. Nowadays, it seems like swearing is not wrong anymore. Cussing. Filthy language. And in this day and age, you see that we live in a culture that says it's okay. There was a young man on, on my bus that he was from the neighborhoods of Grand Rapids. And I made him sit next to me because every other word was, I won't even mention it, but every other word was filthy. And he says, why, why do I have to sit here? I said, I want you to sit here until you realize 
that what you're saying is wrong. It's bad, and it's wrong. I became the law to this young man. He didn't understand that it was wrong. He says, he says, everywhere I go, he says, you know what you're asking me to do? And I said, I know what you're asking, what I'm asking you to do, but you will learn as I did as a child that it was wrong. To you, it's not because you didn't have a mom and dad to wash your mouth out with soap, swat you across the hind end or make you go stand in the corner for an hour. And I said, you have no clue that this word that you're using is wrong. I said, do you use it in the court of law? Oh, no, I'd never do that. See? Do you understand the excuses that you're making? And so we went around and around, and I said, you will sit here next to me. And I said, it's not because I don't like you. It's not because I've got something against you. It's not because I'm some kind of a prejudice against you. You're going to sit here next to me until you learn proper language in proper places. If not, I said, you will be poor the whole rest of your life. The poverty that you live around is going to follow you and you'll never break out of it. Why? Because you do not understand what is decent and what is not decent. Because what is behaving and not behaving. And I said, I'm going to show this to you. And I said, when we get done, you'll get later, older later, you'll say thank you. When the law was given at Mount Sinai, the law was, was spoken verbally. Not exactly like Cecil B. DeMille and the Ten Commandments. It was spoken verbally. And when it was given, it was given for this very reason, that it would scare them half to death. God did that. In fact, they were so afraid of hearing God's voice, they said to, said to Moses, Moses, you go and speak to God, because when we do, it sounds like it, it scares us to death. We're, we think we're going to die. The truth is, people, the lesson that was in that piece of scripture right there is for us today. That when we come into the presence of God, we should understand that in that there needs to be an element of death. Do you see that? How much have you had to die to in your life? I hope as much as I did and still doing. We are daily crucified. Paul said that figuratively, but he means it for today, that we are crucified in Christ. Daily we surrender. Daily we die. When we come into the presence of God, if he were to suddenly fall down on this place and we'd fall down on the floor, there is an element of death in that. You feel like you're going to die. Why? Because you're, you are on fire with conviction and fear. And because of that, the children of Israel said, No, Moses, you go talk with God and we'll listen to you. It was then that the ministry of the prophet came about. And the Lord allowed it. But Moses told the elders, Guys, listen. The Lord did this so you wouldn't sin. What's missing today? The fear of God. The fear of God is present and will keep them from sinning. And when they recognize that, it kept them from sinning. You can read that in 
in Exodus 20, 21. Go through all of that, and, and you'll see that wrapped up in the middle of that there, that they wanted Moses to speak with them. And guess what happened? The one element that would keep them from sinning did not. God says, I, I, I will give you the gift of my presence. I will give you the gift of hearing my voice, but it's going to scare you a little bit. And the reason for that is it keeps you from sinning. And nowadays, we live in, we live in this kind of teaching where we say the fear of God is a bad thing. Really? Look at the church now. It's like ancient Israel. <laughs> is it not? There is an element there that is needed. And so, we have this this wrestling, this struggle between judgment and grace. The law came that we would finally see that there's something here that we're doing wrong. It's amazing. It's really amazing when... You read through the Old Testament and you wonder how any of them survived. Grace. Forgiveness. Grace. Forgiveness. Proverbs 24, 16 says, The righteous fall down seven times and get up again. How many times? Forever. Isn't that the same Jesus who said 70 times 7? Yeah. Yeah, Jesus came to supersede the law, by the way. Uh, he He's the one who said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so he is the fullness of the Old Testament. The Lord of the New Testament. Though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. But the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. Be the one who gets up. A divine convergence is needed. If you'll turn with me to John or just read the wall. Um, John 1, 16 through 18. Oh, this is, this is precious right here. Here's the convergence. Remember who John is here. He was Jesus' beloved disciple. He was the one whom Jesus loved. That's what he said. And so, in verses 16 and 17, when I'm getting there, here it is, I got it. Out of his fullness, John says, in his opening chapter of his gospel, he says, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace. Grace on grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. For the law was given through Moses. Okay, just explain that a little bit. The law was given through Moses. 
but grace and truth came. God knew that there was going to be a need for a Savior, a convergence. God knew that the law was only temporary. Temporary, meaning that that was going to be superseded. In Hebrews, in a couple places, we haven't mentioned that there, it's called the Old Covenant, or it's called, we are, we are in the New Covenant because the Old Covenant has passed away. And that there would have been no New Covenant needed if the Old Covenant wasn't seen as being obsolete. Now all my Messianic friends are going to be hissing at me. It's all superseded in Christ. I love reading and studying the Old Testament. I, I, the more I got into it, the more I couldn't believe how much I really enjoyed it when, you know, my first couple of years in the Lord, I just, you know, like couldn't get out of the New Testament because it was so new to me. And, and I thought that the old was going to be, you know, stale and crunchy. And no, no, it's rich with examples of God's goodness and His grace. And so when you look at that, there is a convergence that was needed. Somehow the old was going to have to give way to a new, and a new was going to have to be superseding the old, that the old was going to become obsolete, and the new was going to be the superseding of the old. And so here we have two things that needed to come together, and we have it, in our scriptures, we have the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and we have the New Covenant, the New Testament, don't we? Now, big difference between the two, isn't there, when you read them? Of course, one is a lot of history. That's why I wish there was two or three other books of Acts, just because I love history and I love to read stories and I love to read about the power of God that the church was doing, living in, performing, and the great acts of the Holy Spirit. Do you enjoy the Holy Spirit? Oh, He enjoys you. He does. He's living inside of you. He's in you. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> I asked the Holy Spirit one time, Holy Spirit, what do you think of me? I wasn't prepared for the answer or how quickly I was going to get an answer. It was no waiting upon God. It was like right away, like he was really inside of me. And he says, I enjoy living in this tabernacle. He enjoys living inside of you. He enjoys it. He enjoys it. You are his home. And he makes you become the expression of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's now in heaven, the Holy Spirit is in you to make you into his expression. And together we are the body of Christ. How good is that? There needed to be a convergence. And the convergence is spelled out in the first chapter here of John, it says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given, but grace and truth came. The law was given, but grace and truth came. 
You see, in one, it's cold, it's impersonal, and does nothing but point out your problems. But grace and truth came personal, in the flesh, God with us, Emmanuel. The light of God shining in our midst, and the darkness hated him. The darkness loves the law. Hates the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he couldn't beat him at the cross or in the grave. Jesus came. The law was given. Convergence. There needed to be a convergence. You know, the disciples had a convergence. And it was miraculous and how that convergence took place. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. How many of you have heard of Matthew Henry commentaries? Anybody? Okay. Matthew Henry said this about the law. He said, He said, The law did everything to point out our sinful disease, but did nothing to show us a cure. There was no cure given. The law showed the disease. The cure was not given until Jesus came on the scene, was born, Emmanuel, and walked among us. Gave his life as a ransom for many. Lived a holy life. Was crucified. He who knew no sin became sin. That we would become the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. We are now that. Matthew Henry said that. That was one of the things that just kind of stuck in my mind, you know, and, and reading through his commentaries, using his commentaries. I'm not, I'm not one to say, you know, uh, best out there. Uh, get several. You know, come from several different angles. Matthew Henry had a really good angle on it. I was given the whole volume of his commentaries from a theologian friend uh, downstate. And uh, he says, here, he says, I don't want them. And I said, why don't you want them? Why are you giving these away? And he said, well, because he has a Calvinist bend to them. <laughs> and I said, well, I will take that. I will take that as a caveat. I will take that as a caution not to not to love his commentaries too much. But anyways, when he said that, I got it. Going, wow. There needs to be a convergence, and there was a convergence. The convergence that needed to be taking place is found in Second Corinthians three three. And Paul is talking about, about the Corinthians being his letter. And, and he says, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And that was also prophesied earlier that this would take place when Jesus came, that the Lord God would someday write instead of on stone, would write on our hearts. And that's what he does. That's what he did. That's what he continues to do through the Holy Spirit. Now, the convergence. Do any of you have a clue where that convergence took place? 
a little convergence, not the final convergence, where the, you know, the, on the day of the crucifixion, the, you know, the veil was ripped open, that was part of it, but a convergence to help the disciples understand how do we understand this old and new thing going on here? And if you will turn to uh, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 8, we will see this as a picture. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. Lonely place. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. That's amazing. They went up on a mountain. They thought, oh, okay, we're going we're gonna to go do something and wonder what it is. I wonder what was going through their minds. When they got to the mountain, Jesus just stops. And he was changed. The Mount of Transfiguration, we call this. I look at it and I put a subtitle to it, also known as the Mount of, Con- of Convergence. Because there was a convergence taking place here. You know, we have the Law and the Prophets. You know, that's what the Old Testament is called, the Law and the Prophets. Jesus referred to the Old Testament as the Law and the Prophets. That's all they had back then. The Law and the Prophets, the New had not been written. The Law and the Prophets, do you see it yet? Who is Moses? Standing before them was Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. Moses was the one who brought the law to the people and expounded that before the people. And the law took off as the governing rule of heaven over Israel at that time. The law. Moses. Moses also being a prophet, he could share some things in a way that, you know, the Lord wanted him to share. He was a mouthpiece for God, for toward the people, but he brought the law. He brought the law. Tablets. Can't imagine how much those things weighed. Tablets. The law was given, but grace and truth came. The law and the prophets was given. Who else was with the law? The prophet Elijah. There was no other prophet as well known to the, to the Israelites back then as Elijah. Why do you think that the disciples wanted to pull off an Elijah move by calling down fire from heaven? Because that was famous. Now you remember there was one who came after Elijah, which is Elisha. And Elisha asked for a double portion, and he got the double portion. In fact, everything that he did in number was double that, in number, recorded in number. It was double that of what Elijah did. Elijah 
prophet, premier. No one like him. The law and the prophets were given, but grace came. Who is Elijah and Moses talking with? The word, capital W, grace and truth. The law was given, but grace grace and truth came. Jesus, grace and truth. And they're watching all of this go on. And I I don't know. I'm I'm looking at John and thinking, you know what, John? John is like, I've got to sort this out. Peter, he's like, you know, Lord, this is really good that we're here. Let me, let me build tabernacles, right? He wanted to stay there. He didn't want to leave. He wanted to stay there. He wanted, what he was seeing between Moses and Elijah and the Son of God, a voice came down from heaven and it, and it scared the disciples the same way at the mountain when the law came. It was, uh, and it said, the Lord said this. He said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then, boom, they were gone. And Peter's like, I want to have a building project. I want to, I want to build a place for us all to stay up here for a while. That's not what happened, was it? He wanted, he wanted to stay. I look at Peter and I'm going, oh, Peter, I know how that feels to want to stay and not leave in that wonderful encounter with the presence of God. How wonderful. There's always a time to come down from the mountain. And when you come down from the mountain, you've got to sort through everything that you saw at the top of the mountain. And that's the most difficult thing. When you have an encounter with the Lord at a mountaintop experience, you know that you gotta come down from the mountain. I, I nicknamed it a re-entry. I nicknamed it re-entry program. And I didn't like it. And I said, oh Lord. And he would remind me, you know, go back and, and look at what, what the disciples had to do. You know, go back to Matthew 17. It's a common thing among us that we do not leave the earth at that moment. We have to go and re-engage with the earth. But by all means, take everything that you gained from that. And they gained a convergence. They could then see how are we going to live out the Old Testament with everything that we have seen over the last three years. This is later on, you know, when Jesus was crucified, then it was like, again, how do we live without him? And they had to come down from a mountaintop, didn't they? And then when he was taken up before heaven, everything added, one thing added to another. And in our looking at things and not being able to make them work, that's a convergence, a holy convergence, a continuing grace. I thank God for His grace. 
The law was all about performance. I remember back in the 80s, we lived in an, an era of church where you had to perform everything. Man, you had to, you had to have suit and tie if you were in ministry. And you had, if you were a deacon, suit and tie. If you were in ministry up here in music ministry on the platform or anywhere on platform ministry, you had to have a suit and tie. And the phrase back then was, we do everything in excellence. Shouldn't that go without saying? (laughs) What would you do otherwise? I enjoy the memories of those days, but I wouldn't want to go back to that performance of things by mere appearance. And I shake my head and I'm going, the things that we argued over back then, where did it get us? I think of the things that we fought and split churches over. Did it, where are we now? Was it worth it? No. Because we had the law without the grace, and there needed to be a convergence of the two. A divine bringing together of two very important dynamics of judgment and grace. And bring them together without either one changing the other, but the two learning how to live together in the fullness of the one. Amen? In coming days, you'll be tempted to throw the law around and bring judgment on your own accord. Don't. Without understanding what spirit you are of, grace is more important than performance. Martha, I've got to go and do this thing over here. And Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, she says, I have to be this. Which was the greater of the two? Jesus said, Martha, you worry yourself about too many things. Mary, look what Mary is doing. She's doing the greater thing. The greater thing is being. We can all perform. We can all act like we're good. But does that mean that we have more of Christ, more of Him in us? You can't have that without grace. You can't have that without sitting at His feet and taking the time to just relax. I spent a couple years just telling a church, relax. Just relax, will you? The important things are His presence on our lives. Our becoming more Christ-like and acting Christ-like on Monday morning and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday until you come back in again and saying, you know what, I've had enough of the world. I need more of Jesus. And that's my prayer for you today.
Would you stand with me? Thank you, Jesus. Lord, there are times in our lives when we need your rest. I'm saying, I don't really have to do this right now. And I don't have to really do it this way anymore. I just need you. Lord, show us how to live. Some of us were coming down to the, to the very last act of the play. Lord, we're coming down to the very end days of our own existence here on this earth before we go and see you. Lord, I pray that we would enjoy these days more than ever. To rejoice in the Lord always. Father, I pray a rich blessing on each one this morning as we go from here. And Lord, as we leave, may we be full of grace and truth in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Is God good? Amen. God bless you as you go today.